RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Yes, we are back for episode 38 of the Rugby Renegade podcast, this time with a bit of a, a rehab injury prevention spin on it, where I interview Mick Hughes of Melbourne Sports Medicine Clinic. Uh, like I said, real great one uh, if you're rehabbing an injury, um, but loads of good information there. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi Mick, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Great to have you on. Uh, why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got into physiotherapy and some of the athletes and teams you work with. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Um, so so look, yeah, I'd, you know, like I've, I've been a physiotherapist and, ex- and an exercise physiologist um to the exercise physiologist first i did an exercise science degree in the early 2000s um i always wanted to be a physiotherapist but it was just probably not applied in high school enough i was probably too busy having fun um and playing sport myself to to get those good grades required to be a physiotherapist so um it was always there in the forefront of my mind to be one one day so i went back as a mature age student in the mid 2000s and completed my physiotherapy degree and have been have been one since 2010 so I've sort of been certainly in the exercise and sports world for um yeah nearly nearly 20 years now which is which is quite quite nice um but yeah I um I one of those things I you know really sort of enjoyed the yeah well didn't enjoy being injured as a kid but I certainly was exposed to physiotherapy through through sporting endeavors and I always thought that would be a good career career pathway which sort of led me to where I'm am today um so i think professionally i guess i've i've been lucky enough to have a diverse um sporting background i work with some um elite junior rugby league teams here in 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 where i did my undergrad studies in townsville um, north queensland um and then i moved down to a place called newcastle which is near sydney and worked with some elite junior soccer players uh, for a few years um, and then moved to Melbourne, um, and I've been lucky, lucky enough to sort of work with some professional female athletes in the uh, the netball, uh, professional netball sporting code down here um, last year. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got a, a, a nice a nice diverse background, which is good because I think you know variety is a spice of life. For certainly, you know things that I've learned through rugby league and soccer and and and, and netball certainly allow me to sort of take different perspectives on injury management. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's tons you can learn from all different sports, and you know, I guess different sports have different injuries, and then you kind of learn how they how they deal with them better, um, and then can apply that to other sports. Um, so, what, what's your kind of overall philosophy when it comes to rehab and and your approach to to dealing with athletes? Yeah, look, I think my my philosophy is certainly active rehab. Um, very active in my approach, and it should always be the prior, priority over over passive treatments and interve- interventions. And I guess you know, encouraging patients and athletes to experience and endure a little bit of discomfort when they're going through rehab and through exercises is completely fine uh, for most conditions. Um, and I'm certainly looking at ways at how 
um, a, a person can remain active rather than sort of, you know, saying to a person, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, trying to figure out what they actually can do and certainly be very proactive because we know the negative effects of deconditioning and detraining leads to subsequent injury when the player returns back to sport. So it's certainly trying to really uh, be on the front foot with an injury that walks in your door knowing, okay, how can I do this better and how can I make sure this current injury doesn't re-injure, but how can I also avoid a second injury somewhere else? And I think that's a really important aspect of all strength and conditioning coaches and physiotherapists out there that we sort of need to almost sort of predict what could happen next and, and keeping that act that person active is a really important strategy uh, in the rehabilitation process yeah that's cool i always always like to say kind of focus on what you can do not what you can't do obviously uh, you know injuries are a pretty depressing time for for athletes but um you know they can still get good good sort of training stimulus in, in other areas and and often sometimes you kind of you know depending on the injury you kind of sort of predict oh they won't be able to do this this and this but like I say if you experiment and and challenge them and see what they can do you can actually be surprised at what they actually are able yeah. to do um and then of course you're, you're right in terms of sorry carry on yeah no you're you, you finished uh, yeah just in in terms of you know re-injury afterwards um have you looked into much of the sort of chronic acute stuff um i know tim gabbett's yes uh, another aussie's done a, a lot on that yeah, 100%. So we, we certainly uh, last year working with the netballers was my sort of first, you know, full you know, full exposure because the, the acute to chronic workload ratio stuff has been around for the last couple of years. So working with the netballers, we used that, you know, very, very diligently. Uh, we had a nice athlete monitoring system uh, that we used where we could – Certainly, see where the players have been in the in the previous, you know, up to um, six months of of data uh, of their daily wellness and and training logs. We could take six months of training into account, and we could actually fast forward and 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 punch in what we'd love them to be training at in terms of weekly training loads to sort of see how we can sort of you know get them peaking for performance. So, um, yeah, that, that's a really important part, and we know that you know an injury would certainly affect that acute to chronic workload ratio so if we can somehow still dump a bit of training into their their weekly schedule via off-feet conditioning if they got an ankle sprain so getting them on a, on a bike or in the pool um still tick over their weights in a modified fashion you can still sort of keep that training intensity up so that when they get back to full unrestricted training they're at a much less injured injury risk um then you know basically saying don't do this don't do that for the next two weeks and you'll be fine it's it's certainly not not the best way forward i don't think yeah, definitely. And now we, I mean, we probably leading in from what you were saying before. You know, working around what people can and can't do. Like I've got, <clears throat> I've got a handful of um, ACL uh, deficient knees at the moment that are awaiting surgery or uh, are playing the waiting game to see whether or not they want to go into surgery. And and I'm looking at them function functioning. And you know, some of these guys are single leg hopping, you know, a meter fifty and triple leg hopping and doing change of direction hops and jumps and lands without a, an ACL in the knee. So you'd sort of for some you know some part of me would think oh that knee shouldn't be able to do that but when you actually ask them to do the task they actually can do it so it's trying i think it's losing that fear and and certainly you know trying things and if it doesn't work the first you know the first time then come back to it again in a week or two when we know the strength's going to be there um so yeah look it's it's certainly a bit of trial and error in certain stages of rehab yeah, I, th I think that's often a, a kind of challenge for for young physios and SNCs, I guess, where you've got someone who, um, 
clinically, you know, it's potentially very bad, but then functionally they're they're very good. How how do you kind of deal with that sort of situation? Is it is it does does one lead the other? Yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one. Um, yeah, like clinically, yeah, they might have a you know reduced range of movement and a swollen knee, yet they can still um, you know partial squat or or squat down to ninety degrees without too much discomfort. So I think it's respecting the pathology, but um, also to still being encouraging because we we know that you know I think symptom symptom symptoms guiding what a person can and can't do in terms of pain i always like to use pain as a guide so if everything's you know subjectively if that pain is under a two or a three then i sort of feel like that that person can push forward and then monitoring the next 24 hours is really important as well so um it is a certainly a complex area and a case-by-case basis but i certainly um would let the person's symptoms dictate um, what we do next, as opposed to having flat-out blanket rules of don't do this, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you mentioned ACL injuries there. Uh, obviously, I guess you're a bit of an expert on this. I've seen you know quite a bit of your content, and I think you've got a, a presentation online uh, somewhere as well. Now, yes. um, uh, how how do you think we can reduce uh, ACL injuries, and and then sort of later on, how how do we improve the rehab? Yeah, it's sort of, I guess it's a two-pronged two, uh, attack. I think, you know, the primary ACL injuries that occur, um, so the, the person that has never had one before, um, I think, and, and reducing the risk of that first one from occurring, I mean, the, the simple simple steps are the uh, neuromuscular training programs or what are better known as injury prevention programs. Um, look, that's the that's the first step in the process, and 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 the research will tell us that when these programs are done uh, diligently and regularly, they have a fifty percent reduction risk in future ACL injuries, which is a significant amount. Um, the problem is with compliance. So the coaches, the athletes, the parents, you know, we there's certainly low compliance numbers across the board, especially at the community level. I think the elite world and the sub-elite world do a really good job of conditioning their athletes and doing these warm-up neuromuscular training programs or injury prevention programs before they train and play. But it's the community level and the amateur levels that probably do a very poor job. And even the high school young athlete level, I don't think they do a very good job of it. And that's just why we're seeing you know, ACL numbers increasing year after year after year. So I think that's the, probably the first step is is getting buy-in and getting these sort of you know community level and sub-elite levels actually seeing the benefits of these programs. And one way to actually shift the focus from um, injury prevention or neuromuscular training into maybe improving the buy-in is actually see these programs as performance enhancing, which the evidence tells us they do as well. So not only do they reduce ACL injury risk by 50%, they actually perf- in, improve performance outcome measures in speed, agility, ba- power and balance in as little as six weeks when they're done two to three times a week. So that's where probably, you know, the coach wants to hear that this program doesn't necessarily reduce injury risk. They probably don't want to hear that. They want to know that this program actually improved the player's performance or, and subsequently the team performance. And same with the player. The player probably doesn't care if this reduces injury risk. They just want to know that this program can make this make me jump faster and jump higher and run faster. So that's probably one way we can uh, certainly reduce the primary ACL injury risk. Um, once an ACL injury has occurred, though, and the person has elected to have an ACL surgery, um, now there's a big debate about you know an ACL injury does it need surgery does it does it not? Now 
it's a big debate which we can go on you know for hours and hours but i think what we sort of need to focus on is those that do decide to have a rehabilitation the best way uh, sorry a reconstruction the best way to make sure that knee has a reduced risk of a second acl injury or even an acl injury to the other side the best way to do it is making sure we stick to the evidence base that's currently available now the acl return to sport evidence tells us that the athlete should wait nine months um, minimum and that's this is the elite world so you know the sub elite and the amateur and the recreational athletes probably should be waiting a little bit longer because they're often you know not as strong not as fast not as fit they don't have the luxury of having medical staff and physio staff day in day out of the club they're not getting paid to do their rehab like the elite world so i think the sub elites probably need to take a little bit longer but they also need to wait that time and pass strength and hop tests and, and those strength and hop tests really play an important feature in showing me and the coach and the rest and, and, and the medical staff that you're actually fit and strong enough to go back to sport rather than saying, oh, you've just waited nine months, your reconstruction will be fine without actually knowing whether or not they can function at a high level. So um, that's the, that, they're the two best ways of reducing ACL risk, uh, in my opinion, based on the current uh, evidence base that is available. Yeah, cool. And in terms of the... Um the strength and, and hop tests, what sort of um, uh, comparison to left and right? Is there is there a certain percentage you look for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So once again, um, evidence will, will tell us that we're looking for a 90% limb symmetry. So what we talk about there is you're comparing your operated leg against your unoperated leg um, and looking for a, nine, no more, uh, a 90% uh, symmetry between sides. So basically, we don't want your left leg which is say acl acl leg we don't want your left leg um to be uh less than uh 90 in its ability so for example if your left leg can hop for a meter then your right leg needs to hop at least 90 centimeters now there are limitations to that 90 percent limb symmetry index and 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 that once again it's a bit of a long conversation but basically you're comparing um that limb um in potentially a deconditioned state. So if you've been through rehabilitation, you haven't been running, haven't been jumping, and you're doing a, a strength test or a hop test, and you're punching out 90% limb symmetry, but your previous best is you know a meter 50 or two meters on a, on a hop test or a single leg hop test, and you're only jumping at a meter, then that's the big limitation. So we should be trying to get you back to sport in your previous best state maybe even a little bit fitter or comparing you to um, established norms that are available for hop test data. So, um, yeah, basically at the end of the day, we want to see 90% limb symmetry between between sides on strength and hop tests for both quads and hamstrings when we're talking about strength. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's some you know, great take-home advice for people there. Um, so uh, we've covered ACLs uh, and you mentioned kind of neuromuscular training. So kind of um i know you use plyometrics and so how do you recommend using plyometrics within the sort of rehab process yeah it's look plyometrics are, are critical um in rehabilitation they obviously need to be introduced at at the right time and in the right place and obviously the right setting um look for for me i certainly use use plyometrics uh you know if we use an acl example um it needs to be done after that basic strength um phase has 
has you know we've got you up to a reasonable level um, which usually for most acl reconstructive patients is anywhere between three to five months depending on their their recovery um and once again we probably would want to see some basic um strength criteria met before we introduce them and i know there's a a, a classic uh, paper based on you should um you shouldn't do plyometrics until you can squat one 1.5 times body weight. Now, that's the kind of rule that I stick to. I think it's the most common rule. I don't know how hard and fast that rule should be, but it's always a nice, a nice comfortable place where you, we, we know that athlete's going to be in a really high strength position to be able to sort of perform plyometrics well without re-injury. So I think that's a, it's a really good guide to stick by. Um, so I'd be sort of bringing in plyometrics anywhere after the three-month mark with our ACL reconstructed patients, starting off very low-level stuff with things like skipping just to get that low-level low level, low level um, plyometric activity, moving into maybe some broad jumps under two feet, moving into then uh, jumping over little mini hurdles, moving into bigger hurdles, um, and then progressing through to single leg and then change of direction, which, you know, you could make it as hard or as difficult as you like, but certainly they're an important part of both the rehabilitation process, but also too in the uninjured people uh, population, they also need to be done from a performance point of view to match the demands of sport. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I always um, find for people people just consider them as a performance thing but they don't actually understand you know the, the effects it can have on you know fitness as well as injury prevention um the really really important yeah thing. absolutely glad you've explained and how i think to use them well. the, yeah and i think the the other key thing that often can be um done in the in the in the i guess the the very keen uh, physios and snc coaches and patients out there that maybe uh, there's this thought that more is best. And certainly with plyometrics, we know that it, the, the more you do per week actually can increase your injury risk um, through inadequate recovery time between high-intensity doses of plyometrics. So depending on the athlete, depending on the sport, we just probably need to be careful of the prescription of um, you know how many times per week and how many jumps per session. Uh, um, and that's the other thing to you know, it's certainly nice to do it, but certainly we don't want to sort of go overboard with it too. And I think the current recommendations, and you, you may have a bit more of a, a, a clear idea, but my understanding is about two to three sessions of a week of plyometrics of um, 100 to 150 jumps per session was one of the recent articles that I read on young uh, adolescent male soccer players. Um, now, I don't know how that applies across the board, but that, that that's the kind of um, the programming prescription that I'd sort of uh, stick to. Yeah. And I, th I think the only thing with that is, you know, people need to understand, um, you, you know, that's not high level drop jumps or anything like that. That's that's a variety of, of bounding and hops and sticks and that type of thing. It's not, obviously, you wouldn't do 150 drop jumps or anything like that, um, just so people can But yeah, definitely very important. And I've, something I've seen on your social media a bit recently is the, the sort of perturbation work. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you've done with that? Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a, an interesting area. It's been a bit of fun and games we had in the clinic just recently. Um, so, um, yeah, we so look a sub a subset of ACL injuries is what what is classified as indirect contact. So I think you know classically ACL injuries were broken down into non-contact and contact. With non-contact accounting for, you know, most most papers will punch out you know seventy percent. Will, 70 percent of ACL injuries will be of non-contact nature so that's that sharp deceleration or pivoting or changing direction activity with not a, any person around them 
um, making contact to the body. And then you, the other 30% is often the contact situation where uh, someone gets tackled from the side and their knee collapses inward. So there's actual physical force onto the knee causing that ACL to disrupt. Now, what we've seen in recent years has been some video analysis of ACL injuries. There's been about three or four studies done recently which have shown that there's a, a second type of ACL injury um, which sort of falls into the non-contact, um, being that there hasn't been a physical force to the outside of the knee at the time of the injury, rather that the person has received a bump in the air or has been running a straight line, has been bumped, and as they've sort of stopped and changed direction, that bump has just changed that landing position from when that person pre-planned it. So that perturbation certainly throws off their centre of mass, centre of gravity, uh, where they think they're going to land, and that has led to that poor neuromuscular control and subsequent ACL injury. Now, we've seen these indirect contact injuries accounting a lot of these non-contact ACL injuries. And so what we've been playing around in the clinic and what we've, uh, some of the good ACL prevention programs, so the FIFA 11 and the netball knee programs that are out there, and I think the AFL footy first has got it as well, they've actually got a component to the program where the player gets a physical bump and you're asking the player to land. So basically we're exposing the athlete to the demands of the sport where, you know, you're going to jump up and catch a ball. Chances are there's going to be a defender or an opponent trying to catch the ball as well. You might collide in the air. Now, you've got to, you've got to learn to take that hit and land safely with good control. So that's the kind of stuff we've been looking at in the clinic and, and I've certainly been exposing some patients to those little perturbations. Once again, great injury prevention measure for those that aren't injured but also to those that have had a knee injury or an ACL reconstruction, they should be getting exposed to those bumps in that sort of mid to late stage as well. So um, nice little training drill, a bit of fun and games too. And, and whether or not it, uh, you know, people see that as fun and it increases adoption of the programs and a bit of buy-in, then, then great. Um, but I th certainly think it's an important part of rehabbing that we uh, expose players to the match demands. Yeah, I really like those drills, and, and like you say, at that that end stage, as as people are about to go into their, you know, their their more technical, tactical, specific training, I think it's good, even for a kind of confidence, especially for I'm thinking in terms of rugby, like back three players, like say going up to yes. to catch a high ball where you know they're going to be competing against other yep. opposition. It's really good for for confidence. I, I like those drills a lot. Um, yeah. Right. So the, a question we ask a lot is. Um, uh, to our guests on the podcast is what is the biggest uh, mistake players make when it comes to strength and conditioning but we're going to start with a slightly different one for you so what's what's the biggest mistake do you think rugby players make when it comes to to rehab and injury rehab um look i think I'll, i probably can't speak for rugby i haven't worked with rugby union players as such i certainly work with rugby league which you know it, similar match demands and and similar similar sport i guess from an athlete perspective from what i've i've seen and this is probably across the board in young male athletes um the females were very very different but the young male athletes they actually probably didn't the biggest mistake they made is that they probably didn't recover very well um they certainly didn't treat their bodies well after the games they they tended to you know go out partying and drinking and and cutting into their sleep and not eating well and all those basics that that really allow the body to recover to the match demands and the training stimulus that, that they're getting within a game so that's certainly a, a big mistake now conversely when i work with the female athletes they would go to bed on time they wouldn't go out and party they'd eat well so they were absolute opposite to what i'd experienced working with young male athletes 
in previous years. So um, certainly from from that perspective and my experience, um, that's what I, I certainly I certainly see is that sort of um, that partying culture, the drinking culture, the poor sleep, poor nutrition after a game. Now, once again, I think the elite world probably does it better and they probably have better control over those things. But certainly I think those younger uh, younger males don't sort of look after their bodies as well as what they could after training um, and after games. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, it's, a, it's such an easy fix as well, isn't it? They just get yes. their philosophy no, right about no, that. Get, get a good idea of sleep and eat well and, and rehydrate. You know, you, you are turning up to Monday, Tuesday training in such a bad, in a better state rather than being hungover, feeling dusty, you know, turning up to Monday practice, you know, still you're basically chasing your tail all year long rather than being in a better, fresher state to get better and better week in, week out over the course of the preseason or course of the games. I sort of see those players that sort of thrive and improve year to year. They're the ones that sort of do those one percenters really, really well. The ones that sort of, you know, plateau out and, and get injured and don't, you know, don't sort of live up to their potential. They're the ones that probably don't do those, you know, one percenters very well. Yeah, uh, and then obviously the the our standard question: What what do you think is the biggest mistake uh, players make in terms of strength and conditioning? Yeah, look, and it's probably maybe a product of um, uh, maybe the the physio involvement or the SNC involvement. I, I, I sort of feel like, from what once again my experience is that maybe they don't do the basics very well. Uh, maybe they sort of over overshoot their ability in the gym. Um, you know, look. The ability to do a good quality squat, aiming between one and a half to two times body weight with good competency and good depth, rather than sort of, you know, going for that sexy exercise that they saw on the internet where they're sort of jumping onto it, you know, they're doing a single leg squat on a BOSU ball or they're doing things with chains or bands or, you know, doing all these fancy things that 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 are great in context and they're great for a person with high level ability but i often see that they're probably not strong enough on the basic fundamental movements of squat deadlift lunge and they're going too too high and too hard um with more complex movements and i sort of see that that's probably one of the biggest mistakes i see from the athlete but whether or not that's generated from us as health professionals not sort of pushing them hard enough with those basic movements or overcooking it um, and, and moving on too quickly to more, um, you know, challenging uh, demands. Yeah, definitely. No, I think sometimes we, you know, we, we like to chase numbers because that can kind of, in some in some situations, save your job or, or justification for your for your role. Um, but, yeah, yeah, like you say, if, you yeah. know, the, the movement's got to come first. And people first. want to see things different. People want to see things different. And I guess that's the thing is if you just have a good, quality you know look good quality evidence is boring you know like you know <laughs> the coaches and the, and the players they probably see they they probably get bored with that you know good quality evidence and they want to see something interesting they want to see something different and that's you know look that interesting or, or different exercise is may not be better <laughs> but that that's where it is really challenging for us as you know health professionals and snc snc coaches is that yeah, it's, it's hard to try and, uh, I guess, maintain that interest um, because, you know, simple is often boring, but it's often best. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very, very tough job because you sort of need to justify your play sometimes. And if, you know, sometimes you, you, you have to do introduce something new and different to, you know, create that sort of uh, interest. Uh, but whether or not that interest is actually better for the person, better for the team, I guess that's uh, that's the hard one. Yeah, definitely. No, I think you've got to try and sort of 80 percent of, of of your work has got to be the those big basic fundamentals and yes. then you try and get that variety in the other 20 um 
because if you do any more, you kind of you, you're chasing the wrong thing, really. Um, yeah. Great, great insight there, Mick. Thank you very much. And um, just, just lastly, Mick, where can people uh, learn more about you? I know you're you're busy on social media. See a lot of your videos and and content going out. It's great stuff. So yeah. Where can people yeah, find um, more? My goal is actually to slow things down a bit this year. I've got a couple of young kids, and I'm staying at home and being more of a stay at home dad. So I was actually, oh, nice. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be the case. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, very active on social media. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handles at Mick W Hughes. Uh, certainly active on Facebook and Instagram at Mick Hughes Physio and uh, certainly post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, you can find me at Mick Hughes as well. Um, and I've got a YouTube channel as well, uh, mickhughes.physio. Uh, I've got a website, www.mickhughes.physio as well. So, yeah, um, if you punch in, if you get lost and you, and you can't find me anywhere on those handles, just punch in Mick Hughes Physio and you'll find me somewhere. Yeah, it's amazing what Google can do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <I> do. <laughs> uh, Cool. Thanks very much, Mick. We will, of course, uh, share all those links on the on the show notes. Um, but thanks for taking the time to talk with us. I think you've given us some great info about injury rehab and uh, obviously we hope none of our athletes get, uh, pick up injuries but uh, if they do they've they've got some really good information there to help that's, them get back fit it, yeah. and, and in better shape so thank you very thank much you. and uh, all the best pleasure cheers mate thanks mate great stuff thank you mick uh, i'm sure you'll agree loads of take-home points there about injury rehab and injury prevention uh, especially the you know being able to get to 90% uh, on the injured side compared to your, your uninjured, you know, little things like that are, are key in the rehab process to make sure you're getting getting close to your best and ready to be back out performing. So thank you, Mick. Um, as I said, Mick's got loads of great stuff coming out on social media, loads of videos, and um, he's got a great uh, ACL presentation, another presentation on his website. So please check out uh, those links that we put down in the show notes. Um, in the meantime, guys, we've got more podcasts on the way, so please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, of course, iTunes, and give us a five-star review. Uh, and keep checking us out on social media and, of course, at rugbyrenegade.com for the best online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.